This is the Toasted Sister Podcast. I'm Andy Murphy. is a powerful thing, and for many indigenous people, it's the beginning of a journey. And for that journey, we have food. Yes, this is the death and food episode. In this show, I talk with an indigenous death doula, her name is Crystal Wabantoop, about her important work and how food plays a role in the celebration of life and in grief from loss. And after I talked with Crystal, I was inspired to create some art to go along with this episode. I made a lino cut print, and if I had to give it a name, I'd call it Spirit Bowl. If I had to describe it, it's a bony hand holding a raspberry. You should just check it out. I think it's pretty awesome, and if you like it, I have some prints available at ToastedSisterPodcast.com. All right, I know you're dying to hear the rest of the show, but stick around for later in the episode. You'll hear from a couple of people who are Lakota and Dakota, Anishinaabe and Tulalip, and they're going to be talking about their relationship with death and food. So let's get started with Crystal. My name is Crystal Waban, and I'm a member of Pekwaknagan First Nation. I'm a resident of the Ottawa Valley uh, on Omami Winini Eki territory, Algonquin Nation territory. I'm the founder and master coordinator for Blackbird Medicines. It's really great to be here. Thank you so much for joining me. Um, so first off, let's just start off with Blackbird Medicines. Tell me about it. Well, Blackbird Medicines is really um, currently my sole proprietorship. It's been a Uh, idea of community care. And originally I had been a consultant kind of working on my own. And at one point just really was clear that it wasn't about my consulting. It was about a community service. And that's where I shifted things and started a death doula collective. And that has been a real life-changing piece Uh, But Blackbird Medicines is technically my own community practice as a registered social service worker with the Ontario College, uh, but also uh, a member of my community who hasn't really had that born and bred connection as someone who's, uh, you know, an intergenerational residential school survivor. I had to build some bridges to be able to connect with my community and Blackbird Medicines uh, is one way that I do that, but it's also a way that I keep connected to uh, the urban Indigenous community and the many people that uh, have guided me over the years in, in, in the times that I've connected with that urban Indigenous. And I'm rural in Pembroke, so it's really a regional thing. <laughs> right. So, so I know what a doula is. So what is a death doula? We know more about the birth doula and we hear a lot more about that. And I think that's really something we've seen the resurgence in. And uh, I was super lucky to get a full spectrum doula training. And all the doulas right now are like, oh, yeah, I know what she's talking about. And the full spectrum of life, right? And for me, the biggest teaching that stood out in my Indigenous uh, birth doula workshop with the Native Youth Sexual Health Network, they, they really grounded the idea of community care and 
harm reduction and decolonizing your perspective. And that was a huge way to kind of blow up my own perceptions because as a, a youth growing up and things like that, like certainly I had lots of cousins and things like that being born. And so it, it made sense that there was a degree of exposure I'd had to babies being born. Uh, but the life spectrum teachings is that there's this whole place and cycle that just like the seasons, just like the phases of life, there there is the spectrum of life and that's birth to death. And the thing about death is it's really similar to birth. It is a different kind of process of transition. So with a death worker, it can be so many things depending on the individual, but overall it's supporting community, just like you were a birth worker uh, in being a community helper, being that auntie, that sister, that neighbor. It's, it's decolonizing our, our care for each other. You know, it's a traditional role uh, to me that I didn't really identify with a lot of traditional roles until I understood about being a caregiver. And this clicked in with me so deeply because whether someone is uh, dying, birthing, <laughs> you know, they're just struggling, maybe they have uh, grief or need extra support, that in, in itself is our old way. And it's been lost with colonization. So with death work, it's more in a modern way. It's, it's not too different from birth work uh, in that it can be customized to the individual. But a lot of it is in hospice, a lot of uh, palliative care. You know, the, the new and the cool thing about uh, this kind of revolution in this work is that, you know, people are planning living funerals and people are, you know, taking control over their plans and their own uh, decisions in a new way. So that's always a good thing when we get to know and, and embrace our, our rights better. Also seeing how harmful that this kind of uh, capitalist sort of industry can be when families are going through such a difficult thing. It's hard enough to lose loved ones. Uh, death workers really help help with those transitions and easing the pain and you know it's it depends on every family every family is unique what, what you do some people you're you're the you activate the telephone tree or you are the telephone tree other people you're really by the bedside um, there's so many different variations and I could take up all of your time talking about it <laughs> Yeah, that sounds really important. I mean, you know, it seems like the topic of death has become really sort of um, dark and, you know, almost kind of uh, uh, stigmatized in the way we talk about it and the way we think about it. Can you tell me about how Indigenous perspectives of death changed and what it means to decolonize that? Well, as far as Indigenous perspectives changing, I think so many of our communities have seen rapid shifts, whether like, you know, from living life on the land to trying to survive in, in whatever way that means in a contemporary way. We see a lot of people, you know, over time have always resisted going into these healthcare institutions. You know, people who want to stay in their homes, stay in their communities, stay wherever they are, because they know they're not going to be treated well in, in institutions. And certainly, uh, in Ontario, there's lots of stories. Canada, there's lots of stories that are very, very recent of women uh, either dying or being totally denied care uh, while they suffer for pain. And it's 
it's just nothing new anywhere and it's it's an, it's the, it's been the the mode of operandi this whole time so with covid uh the death is more in your face i think it's not too many generations that can say they've faced a pandemic and also had this wondrous thing called the internet to have reach and connection in a different way things are being documented and seen in a new way that was never before. So it's a really, really important time, certainly. Uh, but with death work where, you know, people can't have funerals, they can't gather, um, all of these things that they, the local communities might have known, whether they retain those traditions or not, uh, it's so natural to gather. It doesn't matter what culture you're from. When, when a baby is born, when um, a life, a light is passed, it, when someone dies, it's natural to gather and, and feel it and grieve it or welcome and celebrate or celebrate life or what have you, you know. Well, this is where it's so, I think, exciting uh, because decolonizing is what I think for Indigenous communities, it's, just, it's really limited only by your imagination. Every territory and nation has different rules to follow. And within Ontario and Canada here, we're very lucky that you really only need to be buried in something like a, co a cotton shroud. And there's no rules that say you need to be embalmed. There's no rules that say you need to have a $12,000 coffin or a $6,000 coffin or any coffin. You could buy a $50 cardboard coffin off of Amazon and have your family decorate it. Or some nations, you know, it's it's... It depends on where you're at because we have so many people who are taken from their communities as children and they don't get that connection growing up. And maybe they learn of it, but it's still such a thing to come back and, and get it. Not everyone uh, finds the, all those, those stepping stones to do quite that. And that's nothing wrong with anyone. It's just that this is what colonization has done to us. So when we decolonize, it's, a, it's about harm reduction. That's the root core. That's what community is about. We're here to go through this with you. We're here to soften the blow to, you know, just shoulder that load. And when we decolonize, that's at the heart of it. That's the harm reduction piece. And that's the trauma-informed piece. It's not for everyone. It's hard work. But when we decolonize death, you know, there's no, there's no shoulding anywhere. You don't shed people in grief and you don't shed people in ceremony or anything. And that's my personal um, cornerstone. <laughs> but uh, with, with decolonizing death work, sometimes we're preventing death. Sometimes we're the counselor to offer that crisis intervention, that moment where we're, you know, it might be 20 minutes, it might be two hours or two days. It all depends on your role in that world, whether it's your family member or your coworker or someone that you deal with in your job. We are caregivers. That's a traditional role. And that's the decolonizing. Uh, when we, as Blackbird Medicines, we take on clients, there's client agreements, there's um, a practice of care, but we also practice community care. So after that person has access services, there are different ways for them to plug in to being part of our community. And that's really important, whether it's just following along online or getting our newsletter or what have you, we have to make it our own unique way to connect. And that's what I think decolonizing all of this really is. 
Um, some people need to find a way to connect back home. So maybe that's asking a death worker to bring your ashes or dispose of your ashes or dispose, you know, act as your executor. Um, sometimes that's holding a person's hand, you know, in um, Ontario and I think most of Canada, if you're being buried on reserve, you have kind of carte blanche, but there is certain regulations around body disposal, like you have 72 hours and in Ontario only funeral directors are able to transport bodies. And there's different like, uh, you know, biohazard rules and things like that. You know, it's, it's part of the learning of what is required by law in your area and what can you do? It's just like with a birth doula, uh, sometimes some, uh, some nations have traditions where you bury the placenta on reserve so that they're always connected to their home. Um, it all depends on the individuals, but uh, it's not different at all. Uh, I've heard some really beautiful traditions come out of all this work <laughs> since the year has begun. It's been a lot of death for a lot of people. So uh, decolonizing that work is just trying to do our best and support people and however that looks good for them and possible. Um, yeah. Yeah. You mentioned uh, beautiful traditions. Can you tell me about one of them? Absolutely. Uh, so one of the traditions I heard about for the Anishinaabeg, which is um, a lot of the Great Lakes kind of communities, uh, but are mostly around the Great Lakes. And there was cedar mat weaving. And this is something that you would just grow up knowing how to do when a, um, a baby was in utero, maybe mom would weave, you know, in different variations of communities, but you would weave a cedar mat. And this has all kinds of like logical, botanical type of awesomeness reasons like cedar is anti-rot and like it's would have helped like keep bacteria at bay and things like that. But you have this woven beautiful cedar mat and when baby was born, baby was placed on the cedar mat. You know, in our lifetime, the Anishinaabeg would have many cedar mats like you just I guess I don't know, it's just something you would do just leave these cedar mats in your maybe in the winter I don't know um, but you would have many in your lifetime and they would cover the floor of your home and but when you were passing when you're dying this cedar mat that you were placed on at birth as this little infant would be placed under your head and you would have fresh cedar placed into your moccasins you would have fresh cedar placed under your hands and under your you know under your they would place like a lot of cedar and it's, it's always just so sensible to me and practical because these ceremonies and traditions I hear about, like I said, there's all this anti, all this anti-rot and kind of like good uh, sensible things that you would do around like, you know, a body that's decaying. And these are important things. Like I was really fortunate to get home funeral training and around that we start, it, that's a, a decolonizing process in itself where a lot of the funeral industry is an industry and we have these practices that were phased out for the sake of earnings. You know, it's this kind of commercialization, just like the medicalization of birth and the institutionalization of birth. There was the same process around death. This is important. Like this is why we have parlors because in the old days, the person building the home would plan for, you know, at some point somebody's going to die and you would, traditionally host the funeral in your living room in the parlor it was meant to accommodate a group of people coming in to view a body 
it was only when it became profitable that funerals became this big thing, embalming, all this other stuff. A lot of it is very unfriendly to the environment. It has a negative impact. You know, a lot of these things don't decompose. That's why the the whole eco-burial industry is super neat and interesting. There's lots of rabbit holes to fall into. Um, whether you're looking at um, burial options or vessel options or, you know, instead of even cremation has a, a footprint, a carbon footprint when you burn it off. And now there's water cremation type of services that doesn't have the same footprint. So, you know, just like if you go, I think, onto Costco, you can get some kind of like tree burial vessel shipped to your house. Like it's super neat, but... Like I said, lots of rabbit holes. Yeah, it's also interesting. You know, we don't get the kind of education beforehand. It's always just like just unloaded on you once it happens in your family. And I can imagine that family members are just overwhelmed. I've seen family members just overwhelmed and, you know, not even having the the right time to grieve because they're just carrying this huge load of just learning about the system and learning about how to get their loved one you know, through all these rules and regulations into the ground. Yeah, I can imagine like being a death doula, you're also kind of like holding the family's hand while they're going through all of this, right? And, and also educating them along the way. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, this is really why connecting with someone local in your community or, you know, if you're, if you don't find anyone, consider that as a career option because, like doula work is the new yoga teacher. Seriously, uh, you just have to find your spot on the spectrum that you want to work in with death care. You know, no, being able to know your local regulations, what's expected. Uh, you know, just in Canada, it's super different between the provinces. The timelines are different. The, some places do require like a proper casket. So that's where knowing the rules, but also what are the advancements in, in uh, the environment and, you know, the carbon footprints and things like that are all important. And, and to never underestimate the power of developing unique rituals, reclaiming rituals. This is part of our reality is evolving awesome Indigenous beings of resilience is, you know, we adapt, we're smart, we do our, our own thing and whatever that looks like. Uh, you know, I'll never cease to amaze what comes across my, you know, my different feeds and things like that in social media where, you know, learning about like the different Polynesian practices around like weaving these gorgeous things out of plant matter that look like what I know to be moss bags for babies who are born, but they're, it's for their dead. Cutting of the hair is really common for grief, you know. We, we value our hair so many nations, whether it's, you know, uh, resurgence and boys with braids. When grief strikes, that's, that's a, a real commonality in different cultures is it's a very symbolic piece. And uh, same with fire, you know, having uh, different kinds of passages associated with fire or the elements of water. Yeah, it's like I said, rabbit holes. Um, <laughs> but the the death workers can fill so many different gaps um, and I'll just really quickly try and uh, mention a couple of my favorite uh, one lady found herself a niche with no intention 
she was working as a landscaper and she had a long-term contract and the client was getting older. The daughter took over then the, the client passed on and she got um, an, a request to clear out the house of furniture and, you know, aside from a few belongings, if she could root those out and could she get rid of the rest, uh, donate it kind of thing. So, you know, just a one-off through a long-term contact and a relation, relationship because she had a truck. And the next, you know, she's getting referrals for people whose parents have passed and they don't want to sort out the house or it's too painful. Uh, and that's something that I've encountered at uh, running death cafes, which is a really community kind of uh, driven space where you just discuss a normalized death. Uh, one lady was saying how she had four kids and she's, you know, 82 and she wanted someone to drive around to look at funeral homes and she wanted to pick out her casket. She had money. She had all this stuff. She had a plot. And she was like, I can't talk to any of my kids. You know, if I try and talk to my one daughter who lives close by, she loses it. And it's just too hard for her to imagine. But she goes, it's not going to be easier when I go. How is she going to deal with that? So it's a lot of um, seeing what people need. Sometimes you just need someone to do the housework and start calling people when it happens. Sometimes you need someone to spontaneously visit your parent or your grandma or whoever in a home because you suspect different abuses. Uh, so to show up and you know read as a companion, that's a common uh, request for doulas is to act as a companion. If they're bedridden or something like that, like you read from their favorite book or you know you take them on a walk or you do their grocery shopping and you put everything away and then you make them supper and you know you keep them company once or twice a week. You know, you make your own schedule, but you, you're doing legacy planning. Death doulas in Ontario can be, if you have two death doulas or you just need two witnesses in Ontario, you can make an official will. That's pretty essential service. Um, and with Blackbird Medicines, you know, if you need to make your legal will, we'll make sure you're set up with two signing witnesses. Yeah. Yeah. Also very important. Um, but you know, you're on this podcast for a reason. <laughs> you know, I, I came across an article about you from uh, CBC and the work of the um, uh, Indigenous Death Doula Collective. And I was just so like fascinated because, you know, I've, I've never heard of a death doula before. You know, I'm also, of course, foodie, um, <laughs> the creator of the Toasted Sister podcast. But I, I just wanted to email you right away. So I did that. I found your email. I emailed you and I said, you know, it'd be awesome if we could, you know, sit down for an interview and, you know, have this have this episode here. And uh, then I asked you, like, is there any kind of connections with food? And you said, yeah, food plays a vital role in death work. What are these vital roles? <laughs> Well, with, with food and death work, I have to say it's the feasting, whether you're gathered around because you're, you know, holding vigil as someone makes their journey, makes that actual transition, people gather and there's always food being made. And that food is medicine. When we sit down together and eat, when we, you know, connect with each other over that really basic need to nourish ourselves. It's, it's kind of like knowing you're safe around the fire, you know, you're going to be okay. You know, sometimes when someone's passing, they're alone. 
sometimes when someone's passing, there's only one family member or one friend. It all depends on on that journey of that individual or or you know, sometimes circumstance like COVID. To be able to share food is truly medicine and it's a way to bridge connection. And that, and I love that you say foodie because I'm totally a foodie too. Sometimes food can be memories. Sometimes food can be distractions and the essential sensation. <laughs> you know, we we uh, we talk sometimes um, about heaven or you know heaven on earth. And I think really when we get to indulge in these simple pleasures that creation is all around us, like just like our spirits, uh, when we fully embrace and partake, that's that's medicine. And it's a remembering of what's really essential to us. And uh, so just like feasting is part of, of death work, so too is something like a spirit plate. And when we have a spirit plate, it's a plate that's put together uh, just with uh, um, maybe specific people in mind. Um, I've seen it uh, done in my community at gatherings like powwows or vigils or things like that. And the kind of circle facilitator, if you will, will do that. They'll they'll lead the circle in a good opening and a prayer and kind of bring everyone together with their words. And then they'll they'll make that plate and they'll tell everyone, I'm making this plate. You know, if you have words or if you have messages or um, feelings, you can like approach that person, you can offer it up at that moment, whatever is right uh, for yourself. And and that spirit plate is made and it's a little bit of everything or whatever that, you know, person that's making it, maybe they have someone in mind themselves. So like, oh no, they don't, they don't want those beans or whatever. <laughs> but you make that spirit plate and you're honoring those who would have been there maybe another time or could have been there, but they're not. And with that spirit plate, uh, that's, that's another way to feast them in their memory and to raise up that connection and in itself, again, medicine, right? Um, medicine for the spirit, medicine, because when, when people go, they become our ancestors. Sometimes being able to remember that they're, they're looking out for us, or they're part of that great circle of life, uh, that's a medicine that can really help us get through those tougher times. Uh, and it's something that anybody can do at any meal if they really want to. And when, when you have the spirit plate, you feast, everybody eats. And uh, my teachings are that when the meal is done, the spirit plate is returned to the elements. And sometimes that means, you know, leaving it out overnight on the shore <laughs> against, you know, at a tree or something. Uh, sometimes it goes into the fire. Sometimes it goes into the water. It, you know, like I said, different, different people, different communities. It all depends uh, but I don't think any of it's totally wrong. I think it's about honoring the spirit. And when we have our medicines, whether it's our family, our food, our music, our art, our, you know, our garden, whatever it is, our forest, <laughs> our dogs, whatever it is, as long as we can feel grounded in, in that good offering and connection offering. So it's, that's all you really need for spirit offerings and spirit plates. Um, but with the, uh, the Death Duel Collective, I think what's really neat is that we have different nations as part of it. And, but mostly it's people who want to make sure that 
we all get to realize our rights to have a good death. Yeah, you know, food is really very powerful. I don't know how many of us have our grandma's recipes or, you know, we're sitting down to eat something and we're like, oh, this reminds me of my great grandma. Every time we went to her house, it always smells like mutton and dumplings, which is my great grandma. She she um, passed away a couple months ago. But um, I, I just remember every time going to her house and it smells like mutton because she had sheep. So there'd always be mutton stew at the house whenever we come by <laughs> and dumplings. Those memories will always be with me. Now I Every time I have a uh, mutton stew or anything muttony, I smell it. I, I'm going to be thinking of her now. When we say, like, you know, food, you can have a real conversation with food. You can have real communication with other people through sharing a meal, making meals together, swapping ingredients together. I mean, you know, that conversation is still there around death and feasting and in, in our memories. Food and death definitely do stick together <laughs> through our memories and everything, through our, you know, palliative memories. We're kind of talking, we're kind of focusing on afterwards when somebody passes, we're feasting. When somebody's gone, we have a spirit plate for them. What about before? Do you notice clients? Do you notice folks uh, wanting to connect with traditional food at the end? Or is that something that you guys incorporate into your work as death doulas is connecting folks with that part of culture at the end, food culture at the end? Absolutely. Um, when we look at the, there's so much popularity now around the living funeral. Uh, if you're fortunate enough to know that, you know, how much time you got, which maybe some people that's, you know, I guess that's a double-sided coin, fortunate or not fortunate, but some, t some folks are choosing to have a living funeral. They want to hear what people are saying about them. They want to hear like, why should I wait till I'm gone? Right. And why should, you know, and, and they'll treat it very much like um, they'll have a, a last meal. They'll pick a course courses. They'll pick their desserts. They'll pick their wine. They'll pick their, you know, they'll make it really like a dream menu and that's amazing. That's amazing to be able to execute that plan if you have those those stars aligned. Why not? Um, it's a really great way, again, to have that connection and communication, but also it's a great excuse to connect through food. <laughs> and uh, it's always going to be that healing piece. But also when you're working as a death worker, you're often coming in to have a snack and chat with people. With COVID that's changed, I'll say, okay, I'm over here with my snack. You know, uh, sometimes I'll send people tea or uh, if they're local, I'll drop them off something. They can get into that while we're having a, a meeting like this and we'll talk. Other times in different weather, it's been a walk in the woods, you know, looking for, you know, fallen birch bark to get sticks off of and stuff and, you know, try and do some plant teachings and connecting with the land with food sometimes people uh like like you mentioned before having that memory associated with food that's often what it can be when we have certain associations with a positive experience or a good time or a good time in our lives we'll want to go back to those foods maybe it's carnival food maybe it's you know comfort food like some kind of big roast meat 
um, certainly with decolonizing, it's becoming a lot more awesome. Because <laughs> I happen to be um, working with like some COVID response uh, kind of indigenous seed keepers that are doing cool things. You know, there's no limit to what kind of ancestral, you know, resurgence you can bring in with food, whether it's um, some kind of cornbread or uh, rice or, you know, rabbit stew or, you know, there's all these things where you, like you said, with getting that recipe or tracking something down and you can just share in that. Uh, sometimes there's so much that's out of our control that we overlook food, I think. Um, we're, we're so caught up in our survival that it's easy to overlook how powerful our food is or, um, or what, you know, this, the plants that offer us our foods. Uh, if we can find more time to honor that, then we're definitely going <laughs> to get, uh, get a healthier connection when we come together. Yeah. Yeah. If uh, the stars aligned for you and you got to uh, share a last meal with folks, what would you serve? What would you have catered or what would you cook yourself? I like what you said there, catered. That sounds smart. Um, that's a great question. I feel like I would just want like this real berry feast. Ironically, a lot of uh, the folks who maybe are more in the harm reduction area, we tend to do fasting. So there's a deprivation of food. <laughs> but it also spurs, uh, you know, the, the way to honor that food too at the same time. But I really think about berries and oh, cheese, berries and cheese. And, uh, you know, maybe some really nice uh, heavy grain kind of breads and fresh bread and just good old fresh stuff I don't know smelling bread and fruits absolutely <laughs> and that's really what death works about is to pick out ways that make sense and are are meaningful that's where the 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 connection comes from we just have to find our own way and and say damn it this is what's right and move on go forward <laughs> um, <laughs> Crystal gave a lot of examples of how food and death are connected, and I asked a couple of folks to tell me about how food and death intersect for them. Here's a couple of voices from across Native America. Here's Dale Jones. He's a Tulalip elder. The old people, when somebody passed, usually the last three or four days, you know, and people you know, shared their food. Our reservation the uh, about 20 miles long, but the main part is about 10 miles from where we lived. And our families would walk and bring food to them, you know, for three or four days. You know, they weren't rich them days, but what we did have, we did share. You know, that was our culture. They'd stay up all night and all day for three or four days, sing the songs, you know, that we have. But I think more times them days, we were mostly uh, closer, you know, uh, and as modern technology came, it took us apart from our culture. And I, I speak at a lot of funerals, uh, uh, and I tell our people, our culture disappearing in front of our eyes, and saying we are our elders. Like now, I'm I'm one of the elders. You know, and we're people of the of the salmon. We are rotates around about the salmon. So you don't have to answer this question if you don't want to, but yeah. what kind of food would you like to see at your 
your funeral? Barbecued salmon, crab, oysters, clams, because that's what I ate when I was young. Homemade bread, <laughs> biscuits. My aunt was a baker. Here, when we had burials in the old days, they used to go home for two or three days. You know, and now they don't do that. You know, kind of the virus. But before the virus, they were allowed to come home for one or two days. That was most time. It was nowadays it's mostly one day overnight, and then we bring them out on the day before the service. From the funeral home. Before the virus, we used to bring them to our tribal gym, right? And, and that's where we had them for a couple of days. But before then, then we'd bring them home for one day. Then we'd take them to the gym. Then we'd have our service, Catholic, Protestant, or Methodist, or Mormon, or whatever it is, in our traditional ways. But the food is really traditional here. Tipiziwi Tomen Amachiapi na Iawoslaha Emataha. My name is Tipiziwi Tomen and I'm from Standing Rock. I wanted to share a little bit uh what was shared with me by my mentors regarding our traditional foods, our spiritual medicine, and in our Lakota and Dakota beliefs um and ways of being our traditional foods um such as uh, buffalo meat, elk meat, deer meat that we prepared, um, we dried, things like that, um, as well as our turnips, which in Dakota is timsina. We ha- also harvest a lot of uh, wild mint, which is cheaka. Those foods are all what we share in our times of ceremony. For instance, during our namings, when our children re- receive their spiritual names or, or anyone um, receives a spiritual name, there's a ceremony where then the the people receiving the name and those who are gifting the name feed each other wasna, which is one of our traditional foods of either uh, ground corn, ground meat, or ground dr- uh, dried choke cherries or all together and establish a relationship in that manner. And so our first foods, our traditional foods, are definitely um, an integral part of our Lakota and Dakota way of being, as well as when we make our transition from the physical world to the spiritual world back to the ancestors, we carry with us um, a food bundle, which has uh, water as well as the wasna. Those things are then able to nourish our spirits as we make that transition to be with the ancestors. And so um, our traditional foods are really our spiritual foods and a spiritual power and connection between our people and the land that provides our unchimaka. And so there's just so much beautiful connections regarding our foods and how they play that integral and an important role in our ceremonies and in our transitions and all of the nourishment that our people need spiritually uh, can be found and is provided for us through our spiritual foods and our traditional foods and our first foods. And so um, we just, you know, do our best to honor those gifts from Unchimaka, from Grandmother Earth. Anin, my name is Melissa Baer. I'm Anishinaabe Ojibwe, currently living in Western Massachusetts. 
My siblings and I were scooped from Manitoba and adopted when I was four years old and my sister Lori was seven. We grew up in central Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania Dutch country, rich farmlands, the Amish, horse and buggies, and its own unique culinary style. Nine years ago, my older sister, Lori, passed suddenly at the age of 39. Our family lost a sweet, generous, and fun-loving mother, sister, daughter, and aunt. The first year without her, sadness and disbelief surrounded holidays and family gatherings. And then her first birthday in the stars. She would have been 40 years old, a milestone birthday. I felt devastated that we could not celebrate this together with her friends and our family. The reality that I would never hear her say, hey, Melissa, again. I was no longer able to call her and tease her about her stupid while you wait for the caller message, which usually had some sentimental love song playing. Or be able to talk about our experiences as scooped kids or for her to discover that her Percy kid sister learned to love to cook. So many conversations yet to be had. It made me sink into a mix of emotions and questions that only grief can bring. As her birthday approached, I decided that I would celebrate her 40th birthday by making one of her favorite dishes, chicken and waffles, Pennsylvania Dutch style. It's ultimate comfort food. The dish reminds me of home. Community church dinners where friends and families would prepare and feed hundreds of people and being in the home kitchen with my mom and sisters, conversations and laughter and accord that only sisters can make. As I prepared her birthday dinner, tears and laughter came as I recalled cherished childhood memories, stupid fights, and the confidential camaraderie that only sisters can have. We set the table and I prepared her plate, a made from scratch waffle, a scoop of mashed taters, as she would say, topped with shredded roasted chicken and a gravy. She liked extra gravy, along with an after dinner smoke. This dish is savory, delicious, no syrup to sweeten, no sugar coating just as she would have liked. As we ate, we shared stories and memories of Aunt Lori. I felt comforted. I was happily reminded and could hear her laughter in my mind. And I knew that this was how we would always remember and celebrate her birthday. This is my spirit plate story. Megwitch Andy for letting me share and remember my beloved and missed sister. Lori. Thank you so much to Britt Reed for helping me get an interview with Tulalip Elder Dale Jones. And thank you so much to my dad, Tim Murphy, for supporting this podcast with a sweet gift card for Guitar Center. 
And thank you to CWION for letting me use this new song called One Fret Away. That's from his new album, One Fret Away. Check out his music at Bandcamp. And thank you so much to new Patreon supporters, Joanna Berger, Invisible Choir, and Laura Gorley. Thank you for your monthly contributions, and if you'd like to make monthly contributions to this show, find Toast Sister Podcast on Patreon. Every little bit goes to keeping this show alive. And I've got tons of ideas and a bunch of small and large projects coming up, all indigenous food related, of course. So follow me, Andy Murphy, that's Andy with an I, and the Toasted Sister Podcast on social media. And subscribe to the newsletter. The Toasted Sister Podcast is supported by the Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation. Music is created by CWION. Check out his great music at CWION.com. Don't know how to spell CW or ION? That's CWAYON.com. And thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you learning about indigenous food with me. We'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.